This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Are you ready for some high adventure coming up next on the Mutual Audio Network? The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. The Case of the Legal Eagles, Part 2. The name's Dixon. Trixie Dixon, girl detective. The important thing was that we had a client. On a practical level, clients meant money. And money meant rent, and groceries, and trifles like that. On an existential level, clients and their problems provided a mission, a reason for being without which a detective was merely a shadow passing through this world without import. I liked all of these words. I also liked the prospect of looking at something other than Jack, and talking to people who were not Jack, and going outside into environments where not everything smelled like coffee grounds, defeat, and Jack. So I was in favor of our employee by Eugene Simmons, late of Columbus, Indiana, I was in favor of it, and I said so. I also didn't like it very much at all, and I said that too. You don't have to sell me, Jack said, unplugging the hot plate and resting the coffee pot in the sink. Guy's story has more holes in it than his hat. You are in something of a glass house yourself in that regard. I unwound my umbrella from the stand beside the radiator and made sure it was still in working order. Shall we enumerate the baloney? Alleged baloney, Jack said with the raise of his finger, as if he were making a sage legal point. Alleged, yes, I agreed. Well, for starters, he took a bus, Jack snorted. That's your problem with this, I snapped, placing my still rain-soaked hat upon my head with as much grace as I could muster. Columbus, Indiana is a hop and a skip south of Indianapolis, Jack said, and whatever else he did, he'd have to transfer there. So, I asked. So he took a bus from the railway city. Jack was perfectly serious. Oh, for God's sakes, Jack, I protested. You never met a slogan you didn't like. What? He pulled on his overcoat, spraying drops all over both desks in the process. New York is the Big Apple, but no one grows them there. Chicago is hog butcher to the world, but I can still get a steak if I want. The rate of fratricide is within the national average in the city of brotherly love. Please stop. Jack asked as nicely as he ever asked anything. And you can take a bus from the railway city, I continued. You're still talking, he observed. And Indianapolis is not the railway city, it's the crossroads of America, I concluded. It's both, he grunted. Well, we can look it up when we get to the library, I said, opening the door. Wait, he knit his brow in befuddlement. We're going to the library? We have a person to find and no clues beyond a name, I said, baffled. Where did you think we were going? I assumed we were going to lunch, he protested. We've been on the clock for eleven minutes, I argued weakly. That's what I said, he nodded. Noodles first, then library. The rain was no longer truly pounding down by the time we left Jimmy Wong's, but we still drove through a cold mist to the downtown central branch of the public library. The safest assumption was always that the client was an idiot who did not know how to use a city directory. 
You'd be surprised how often that was the end of these things. Alas, this time it was not to be. Jack had wandered off without comment, but returned before I had a chance to enjoy his absence. It's both, he said, looking self-satisfied. I gave him a quizzical look, and he explained. Indianapolis. It's both. Did you just continue a conversation from an hour ago as if I were even listening, I asked. I did, he nodded, and the rate of fratricide in Philadelphia is 20% below the national average. You're lying, I said without emotion. No one keeps statistics on that, and you're too stupid to know how to find them if they did. Uh, sure someone does, he shrugged, but I was lying about looking them up. Yeah. I didn't like that whole game about not remembering the name of the motel, I said. That was thin. Even thinner when you remember that he must have told it to at least one taxi driver, Jack said. He came here on his first day in town, and it was pouring out. New in town, doesn't know his way around. Even if he had a lot of money, which he does not, that's still a cab here and a cab back. If he told a hack to take him to the goose, what do you think the reaction might have been? So why the routine, I asked. Maybe he's an idiot, Jack said. Or maybe he just didn't want to tell us anything he didn't have to. He sure didn't, I said. He'd have rather given us 40 bucks and a name and that's it. So why? That's not the interesting part, Jack said, his eyes narrowing. The interesting part is, why did he follow us here? What? I asked. Don't look. He's behind the pillar over near the reference section, Jack grinned. I'm beginning to genuinely dislike this guy. He doesn't trust us, I said. The feeling is mutual, Jack nodded. I don't want to get this guy an inch closer to Wendy Howard until we have a better idea of exactly what his damage is. Agreed. Let's head downstairs. I set sail as casually as I could for the door on the far side of the large open space. Aw, not the microscopes, Jack whined like a mule. Anything except the microscopes. Are you trying to say microfiche? I taunted. Do out-of-town periodicals on microfiche make you sad? They make me want to punch something in the face, he corrected. Why can't I just punch Simmons in the face? Because Simmons has only paid us for one day, and we have yet to stick him with the bill from the chop suey house, I said, like the completely reasonable mercenary that I am. I'll find out what we need to know about the murder case. You go to City Hall and see what the marriage licenses give up. You want me to find Wendy Howard, he asked, surprised. I do. If nothing else, it will pay for lunch. Jack snorted. And what if the client follows me instead of you? I said nothing, but as we neared the stairs down to the lower level, I managed to catch the attention of Ira, who was my favorite library assistant, in that he would do absolutely anything I said or asked, all in the obvious, desperate hope of sorting my card catalog once and for all, which opportunity I had steadfastly denied him, as his agitated state made him extremely useful. Getting his attention was not difficult, as his eyes had been upon me since we crossed the threshold, and as I signaled him toward the microfiche, he nodded and leapt down the staircase ahead of us like a dancer. "'What's the anemic for?' Jack asked diplomatically, but not so loud as to be overheard. "'Take your car keys out of your coat pocket,' I said, ignoring him. "'Why?' "'Because when we get to the bottom of the stairs, you're going to give your coat and hat to Ira, and break for the fire door behind the south shelves.' "'Ira is the anemic?' Jack clarified. Won't Simmons wonder where the rest of me went? By the time he rumbles us, you'll be long gone, and we'll know where the girl is if we need to protect her. Thirty seconds later, Jack was gone, Ira was appropriately cloaked, and bringing me holders full of both the Indianapolis Star and News, with his head down to hide his face beneath the brim of old Square Jaws hat. 
It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to him, or that would be at any time in the foreseeable future. I settled in quite happily. I was fairly certain that the client was at a reader on the other side of the section, trying to figure out what my suddenly, tragically thin partner and I were looking so industrious about. And that is the glorious thing about microfiche. A person leafing through a newspaper looks inherently lazy. If there's a pile of them, you look unfocused and stupid. But in the comforting hum of the microfiche reader, a person appears authoritative, clever, and extremely busy, even as one is flipping through hundreds and hundreds of pages of seven-year-old out-of-town newspapers. It wasn't hard to find the case. Richard Underwood, accused of killing his business partner and his estranged wife in a deliberately set fire. The case had everything a bad newspaper could wish for. Embezzlement, adultery, excessive alcohol, drug abuse, betrayal, vengeance, and gruesome crime scene photos. Twelve jurors, good and true, were deadlocked for a week before returning a conviction on the lesser charge of manslaughter, upon presentation of which the accused chose to scream hysterically and rush the jury foreman, local banker Hector Barnsworth, before being carried out of the courthouse swearing vengeance upon those who had wronged him, which is really an excellent way to make people wish they had returned a charge of murder one, but alas, too late. The paper helpfully listed the names of the full jury, and it included both Eugene Simmons and Wendy Howard, though if there were any sort of unspoken bond of love blossoming between them as a convicted manslaughterer threatened their well-being, the newspaper failed to mention it. While I was absorbing this titillating little drama, my new wraith-like partner was stacking up recent paper issues of the Star, which I did not want, but it kept him in motion and therefore harder to focus on if you were my client. The peeping Eugene. In time, Ira settled down to helpfully flip pages in the bounty he had provided, which made him easier to ignore. I tracked the story back through the course of Underwood's trial and confirmed that at no other point did the jury distinguish itself in any way that the papers might have considered newsworthy. In the absence of data to the contrary, I was about to call that a win for Mr. Simmons and his version of the truth when I heard a clacking of heel on the tiles behind us. I turned and saw Mrs. Baranovsky one of the senior library clerks bearing down upon us with as hatchet-like an expression as I have ever seen on a human face. As she was normally the seventh sweetest woman alive, I could only assume that this change in disposition was due to exposure to Jack, a notion which was all but confirmed when she handed me a slip of paper. The penmanship upon the paper I took to be Mrs. Baranovsky's, as it was flawless. The content, however, was like a telegram written by a very slow child, and I knew it was a telephone message from Jack. It read, Wendy Howard, spinster, married Kenneth Clayton, bachelor, six years ago, didn't take, have an address. Well, that's almost a sentence, I said quietly. Thank you, Mrs. Baranovsky. She nodded and spoke not a word. From the way she tried not to scan the surrounding tables, it was clear that she had been warned that I might be under surveillance, and she seemed to take a vicarious little thrill in spotting that it just might be true. She glared at Ira by my side with a look that seemed to suggest they would have words about his behavior later, and she clip-clopped away as quickly as her heels would take her. At this point, the best thing to do would have been to wrap things up at my end, take three taxis in order to ensure that I was not followed, and head back to the office, or at least the bar closest to it, to wait for Jack. Before I could implement this really excellent plan, I felt a gentle tugging at my sleeve. I assumed this was an effort on Iris' part to get my motor running, and I was fully committed to my reaction of deep and abiding pity for the extent to which that boy did not have a clue, when I realized to my chagrin that he had something else in mind. 
I had to duck slightly under the brim of his hat, which he was still keeping low to avoid discovery, when I saw his eyes darting frantically as if trying to impart information. You can speak, I said quietly. You aren't playing a mute. Right, I remumbled, embarrassed. It's just I found this. He pointed to one of the recent newspapers, perhaps three weeks old. It was a large obituary of Hector Barnsworth, local banker who had recently died of smoke inhalation when his garage in suburban Indianapolis caught fire. We need a payphone, I said, horrified. What is it, Ira said, less quietly, though still working the disguise as best he could. Bring that article. We need a payphone right now. Ira looked stressed at the thought of leaving the microfiche area in such a state and almost apoplectic at the idea of carrying an out-of-town periodical beyond its boundaries, but he obeyed. I moved quickly through the east doors, which were furthest from where my client still lurked, but I did so primarily because it led to the shelves of phone directories. It took three or four minutes to find the volume, which included Columbus, Indiana, and I had no time to play nice. I grabbed a page at random and tore it free from the book. Ira let out a squeal, which might have been protest, but I assumed was secretly delight. The mild-mannered ones are always closeted vandals, and Ira was now conflicted and frantic with repressed passion that I had no time to frustrate properly. Three minutes later, I was at a payphone in the cavern-like lobby, asking the switchboard operator at the Indianapolis Star to connect me with the writer responsible for the obituary. Is there any chance that a man convicted of manslaughter seven years ago could be out of prison, I demanded? Who is this, the nebbish voice demanded. Hector Barnsworth served on a jury seven years ago in the trial of a man who killed two people with a deliberately set fire. I was on a roll here and absolutely nobody was picking up the slack. Who is Hector Barnsworth? The voice was getting annoyed. He died of smoke inhalation. You wrote his obituary three weeks ago, I snapped. Young lady, I write a lot of people's obituaries. The voice was clearly finished with me. Well, you go find a real reporter and ask if Richard Underwood is out on parole. If you don't know when I call back in ten minutes, the next obituary you write will be your own. I hung up before he could tell me that isn't how it works. I fed Nichols into the payphone like a maniac and struggled to read from the purloined page of the Columbus phone book. I can't believe we fell for this, I muttered. Fell for what? I recalled from deep in the folds of the oversized hat and coat, looking more like a scarecrow than ever, which was saying something. Never you mind, I snapped. Just keep your eyes peeled for the man that's been staking us out. Don't let him sneak up on us. Why? Ira gasped, his extra pep suddenly spent. Is he a murderer? No, I said, he's a manslaughterer, and also an arsonist. Except, yes, he might also be a murderer somewhere between one and eleven times over. Ira squealed again, but this one was muted, and I could tell that playing detective was not as much fun as he hoped it would be. Hello, I shouted into the phone before realizing that I did not even know the name of the random person I had dialed in Eugene Simmons' hometown. This is Trixie Dixon. I'm a reporter for the Indianapolis Star. Do you happen to know Eugene Simmons? She did. And she said as much. You could have knocked me down with a feather. She then asked if I was calling about his mysterious disappearance. Now I was really ready to fall over. Uh, yes, I am calling about his mysterious disappearance, I said emphatically, wondering if my gun was in my handbag. I listened for a moment. Close the store without warning, I repeated. I hasn't been seen since. Can I quote you on that? I then pretended to write down the spelling of her name that I did not even listen to while straining my neck looking for the killer who had very nearly tricked us into delivering his next victim right to him. Hey, Jack called as he crossed the room with a woman I had never seen before. Is the client still here? I delivered Wendy Howard right to him. The man who had hired us broke cover. Miss Howard, he called. Jack, 
No, I yelled, pulling the Beretta from my bag as gracefully as I could while sending library materials flying in every direction. Wendy Howard screamed and held her arms out in terror. Ira screamed and fell upon the ground like an out-of-town newspaper, twitching. Jack did not fall to the ground and did match my gesture with his own forty-five, stopping the prospective murderer dead in his tracks. There was a small pause. "'What are we doing?' Jack asked calmly. "'I was hoping you knew,' our target said, much less so. "'That is Richard Underwood. He swore revenge upon the jury that convicted him, served fifteen years in seven somehow, and started hunting them down. He's already murdered Hector Barnsworth and the real Eugene Simmons and set us up to find his next victim for him, Wendy Howard.' Jack cleared his throat. Wendy Clayton, actually, divorced these three years now and very keen to be reacquainted with the real Eugene Simmons, if we can produce him. He's standing right there, the woman protested, pointing at the man who, it appeared, might actually be our client after all and not even a little bit dead. I know him anywhere. I've thought about him every day for the last seven years and wondered what might have been if only I'd been brave enough to tell him how I felt. Oh, Wendy, Simmons said, his hand still raised. I feel the same way about you, and I always have. Trix, Jack said flatly. I'm gonna put my gun down now. Yeah, okay, I said, quietly furious. There was an awkward moment when Jack dispelled as best he could. You can, you know, run into each other's arms if you like that sort of thing. They apparently did. I can't believe this, I muttered as Jack strolled over to relieve Ira of his hat and coat. I was sure we'd been lied to by yet another client? One who made himself look incredibly guilty by following us around like an idiot? You're saying this could have happened to anyone? I asked hopefully. Nah, Jack shook his head. Not gonna lie, I'm going to lord this over you for quite some time. He glanced to the main doors, where several uniformed policemen were running in our direction, their service revolvers drawn. And apparently somebody called the police, so you may wish to put your hands in the air quite slowly. Ira, you too, pal. Good afternoon, officers, Jack called. What seems to be the trouble? And that is the true story of the only client I can recall who never lied to us at all, except for the couple of times that he did. As far as I know, our two legal eagles returned to Columbus reopened whatever kind of store he owned, and lived happily ever after. And while he did respect the two-day minimum stipulated in his contract, he totally stiffed us for the noodles, which still made him a jerk in my books. The Casebook of Justice in Dixon, number one, The Case of the Legal Eagles, was written by Greg Taylor, read by Andrea Lyons and Greg Taylor, and presented by Dakota Ring Theatre. If you would like to help ensure that new content like this continues to be available, please visit patreon.com slash g-r-e-g-g-t-a-y-l-o-r or look for the links in the show post. Thank you. So, do you like comedy? If you do then Friday Follies might be just the feed for you. From the Mutual Audio Network, every Friday we bring you a selection of hilarious audio drama, and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Just search for Friday Follies, or you could subscribe to the main Mutual Audio Network feed. It's up to you. Find us there.
The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.